Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. Then Joseph died. Oh, 22. Yes, thank you. Then Joseph died, as did all his brothers and all that generation. Yet the children of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied and grew extremely numerous, so the land was filled with them. Now there rose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are too numerous and too powerful for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or else they will grow even more numerous, so that if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. So they set slave masters over them to afflict them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as storage cities for Pharaoh. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread. So the Egyptians dreaded the presence of the children of Israel. They worked them harshly and made their lives bitter with hard labor, with mortar and brick, doing all sorts of work in the fields. In all their labors, they worked them with cruelty. Moreover, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphra and the other Pua, and said, When you help the Hebrew women during childbirth, look at the sex. If it's a son, then kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. Yet the midwives feared God, so they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this in letting the boys live? The midwives told Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are like animals and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied, growing very numerous. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. But Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, You are to cast every son that is born into the river, but let every daughter live. Thank you, Tracy. A couple weeks ago, a bunch of us went to a party, a birthday party. And it was not your standard issue type birthday party. It was a bash. Uh, Aaron's 60th. And uh, it was fun. And we... uh, Got to hear some oldies from uh, the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And we even got to hear a couple of our favorite Yeshuatzion worship songs uh, done with a little bit of a different twist. In other words, the kind that you can rock and roll to. And towards the, uh, the end of the program... Aaron uh, shared gently his journey of faith and um, mentioned a song that topped the charts in the 19, uh, 1969 and 1970, uh, selling two million records. Um, this song made a very deep impression on him. And um, uh, Grandpa is quite capable of embarrassing embarrassing grandson. Thank you. And um, 
This song is, is called uh, Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. And if you go back to the dim and distant past like I do, a couple of centuries, then you'll recognize it. And I uh, wanted to play a little brief portion, a little brief clips from it, clip. And so would you please turn off the lights and let's do a little uh, Spirit in the Sky here. This is not the standard issue kind of song that we listen to here at Yeshua Tzion. Um, can we have the lights, please? But as you might imagine, um, and this is part of what happens when you get old. You begin to think about stuff when you were young. And uh, so the song was playing in my mind over and over and over again. And so inquiring minds have to find out. So I went to the uh, local neighborhood Google and uh, had to find out who Norman Greenbaum was. Uh, he's obviously of the Semitic persuasion. Uh, come to find out, he was raised uh, in a conservative Jewish home in, uh, in Massachusetts. And... Uh, he loved gospel music, and he was listening to a, uh, a gospel singer named uh, Porter Wagner. 
And uh, he thought that was very cool. And he said to himself, self, I can do this with a little bit of a twist. And so he sat down. In 15 minutes, you have the song here. And uh, then, of course, the rest of the time he spent uh, working on the music. As it turns out, um, that was his one and only song. Two million records and nothing else after that. He has been flipping burgers and he is a sous chef in uh, somewhere in, in the Bay Area. So, of course, you can imagine all kinds of people would ask him about this. And by the way, uh, we stopped before we got to the third verse, which said, ain't never sinned, never been a sinner. And so uh, believers, Christians of one type or another said to him, uh, hello, you're, you're, you're singing a gospel song and you said you have never sinned. And his response was simply to shrug his shoulder and say, I don't know. Um, you know, I just put this together and um, I like it and that's, that's it. And uh, it brought me back to my youth when we were living in New York and uh, I was a committed believer then. And uh, in those days, if you were a Jew who followed Yeshua, then you were either Baptist or Pentecostal. In other words, once you were a Jew, you're no longer a Jew. That was the mindset. And uh, that was us. And so I listened to the song and kind of shrugged my shoulder and thought, yeah, okay, well, whatever. Uh, and so when Aaron played this, uh, superbly, I might add, um, what came to mind is simply one basic fact, and that is that God can use anything and everything. In my case, it really didn't, didn't make much of a dent. In Aaron's case, and I'm sure in the life of thousands of young people at that era, that made a huge difference, particularly Jewish young people who were given an example that it's okay to think about Yeshua. And, uh, and by the way, at this point, 34% of people in the Jewish community say that you can believe in Jesus, uh, Yeshua as the Messiah, and still be Jewish. Isn't that something? That was definitely not the case in 1969. But again, what it spoke to me, folks, is simply one basic fact. And that is, we tend to put God in a box, we label him, and we constrict him, and we assume that because we don't understand anything beyond issues that God doesn't, and that, we are in, that he is incapable of conceiving things, because we are incapable of conceiving things. And I'm here to tell you that God is much greater than that. Amen. We've been seeing a lot of this uh, during the past few Shabbatot as we went through 
uh, the story of Daniel and Esther, uh, in which we see that there, there are pagan kings, guys who worship uh, Marduk, the, the Babylonian god, and, and, and the Zoroastrian religions, etc. And yet, God Almighty was capable of invading their space and speaking to them in ways that they knew that it was something in somebody very special, very unique, and they were somehow able to connect the dots that this was the God of Israel. And so we often are familiar with the biblical stories and we hear about them and, and it doesn't really make much of an impact because we see it played play it out only on a human drama. You know, flat two-dimension screen, not realizing the fact that God is multi-dimension, multi-dimensional and is able to do all kinds of things that are clearly beyond us. And uh, we're going to be beginning uh, a series as we prepare for the Passover and for Yom HaTchiyah, we'll begin a series in a book of Esther, a uh, book of Exodus. And uh, again, stories that we've heard of, often uh, over and over and over and over again, but I, I invite you to put on a fresh pair of glasses and say, Lord, would you please speak to me through these very familiar passages? Give me something fresh for today. So let's do that. Father God, Thank you that your word is actively powerful, alive, and able to divide between, uh, between the soul and spirit, between joint and marrows. And we pray, Lord God, for that to take place with us. Lord God, that we would be able to hear from you and that your word will make a separation between the truth and error, between what is valid and legitimate and between the lies that we often embrace because of the world, because of who we are. And we pray, Lord, that you will free us from those lies, cause us to see your truth, which sets us free. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. So in the beginning of this chapter, and I just want to backtrack a little bit. We won't pronounce all the names of the tribes. Beginning of this chapter, we see that the people of Israel are in Egypt. Nothing terribly unusual. You have roughly 70 people who are there. And they are beginning to grow, and they have babies, and so on and so forth. Um, Jacob obviously is dead. Joseph is dead. And so things are, at the very beginning, looking like nothing unusual is going to change. And this is part of reality for us because God often does things in heavenlies, supernaturally, invisibly, uh, 
much of the time behind the scenes where we don't understand what's going on. And at some point, he breaks forth visibly so that we see what, what he's doing. Here at the very beginning, um, he doesn't do much. And we have the opportunity to say, God, I don't see much happening, but I trust you and I want to see things, greater things taking place in my life, not for my sake, but for your sake. In other words, not so that we can strut and say, wow, look at all this stuff that's happening, but rather look at all the things that are happening because God is doing them. I had a, I talked with Ted Pierce this week, and he told me that 16 years ago, he said, God, would you please do what is impossible in my life? And that's been happening, by the way. Um, at a time when a lot of musicians at his age are shifting in, into retire, retirement mode and playing somebody else's music, Ted is shifting into higher gear and is much more creative, much more productive at this point than he ever was. Clearly God has answered, has been answering his prayer. So, um, nothing much is happening, verse 1. However, like everything in Scripture, it begins with God's plan. And because we're so self-consumed, you know, it's me and what I'm doing or somebody else is doing, then we're oblivious to the fact that God is at work and God has a plan. And because God has a plan, he is dynamically, irresistibly at work to carry out his plan. The fact that Israel was in Egypt was part of the plan. Remember what the Lord said to Abraham. The Lord took him outside. This is Genesis 15. The Lord took him outside and said, Look at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. That was the plan from way, way, way back here. At this, at this point, nothing is happening. Then all of a sudden, we see exponential growth. Verse 7 here of Exodus 1, The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. In other words, their numbers exploded. And you know that in Scripture where things are repeated, it is designed to get our attention and say, Hello, are you listening? Let me tell you. Let me tell you, let me tell you. And here you have four different action verbs that convey the fact that there is rapid explosive growth. And I wanted to highlight you, to draw your attention to a couple of those. One is swarming. In Hebrew, sharatz, I want to ask you to pronounce it. But if you rewind the tapes and go back to Genesis chapter 1, you'll remember that that was exactly the expression that was used at creation. God was acting creatively, and there was water, and life forms were swarming and teeming 
coming out of the water. So what does that suggest? That whatever is taking place in Egypt with the people of Israel, it is due to God's creative power. In other words, what we're seeing is not normal reproductive cycles. God is working powerfully. And then the second word that is translated as numerous, atzam, means to become strong, mighty, and great through an increase in numbers. In other words, because you have all kinds of numbers, then that brings about growth in your ability to be strong. Again, God's overcoming power at work. Now, we need to remember that the people of Israel were not in a great place at this point. They lived in Egypt, and Egypt was not a real friendly environment for them. It was under Joseph, but we need to remember that the Egyptians could not eat with the people of Israel. They could not live with them, and that's why the people of Israel had to live in Goshen, which was outside Egypt proper. And it, the people of Israel's worship was considered abhorrent, in other words, abominable to the Egyptians, so much so that Moses said, hey, if we offer sacrifices here, you guys are going to stone us because you find it so disgusting. So you can see that the people of Israel um, were in a somewhat of a tenuous environment, and as long as Joseph was the second in command, he was the buffer. But when Joseph died, then you have a real problem. And it becomes even worse when you have, in verse 8, you have a new king who did not know Joseph did not know about Joseph, who comes to power. Now, there's all kinds of controversy, exactly who this king was and, and what took place. Uh, one theory that seems reasonable is that the pharaoh who ruled um, during Joseph's time was from a Semitic group of people called Hyksos, and that they were driven out of Egypt, and you have the Egyptians proper taking over, possibly Ramses. Um, we will know for sure when we come into the Lord's presence. This is one of the 365 questions I have that I want to present to the Lord when I first see him. The short version is what the text does say. Uh, he was a new king, and the, the Hebrew word for new here means to be distinctively different. In other words, not dad and son. In other words, there, there's, no, there's no connection, no overlap between the previous ruler and this ruler. And this ruler does not know Joseph, and the Hebrew word for knowledge here, yada often has the sense of experiential or relational knowledge. In other words, it's not the knowledge that you hear about and, and you, and you uh, get as you um, 
as you are on the internet and checking different websites or reading books, etc. It is knowledge that you acquire through relationship or experience. He has no relationship. He had no relationship with Joseph. And so because there's a change of dynasty, there's a change in policy. And, and from his perspective, he was being absolutely reasonable. Look at verse 9. He said to the people, the Israelites have become too much numerous for us. The same kind of word as we saw earlier in verse 7, atsum, meaning they, they become strong because they become more numerous. Verse, verse 10, come, we must deal with them shrewdly or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So he is being a, uh, a clever ruler. He is seeing what's happening with the people of Israel with explosive growth. And he is saying, you know, we have a problem here. We need to contain the problem because if enemies come, then these Israelites will join them and ending up leaving Egypt and leaving Egypt a lot poorer. So you can understand that from his perspective. However, look at what he's proposing as the answer. Verse 11, here chapter, uh, chapter 1. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and build Pitom and Ramses as store cities for, for Pharaoh. Obviously, slavery, somewhat like what we have seen in the American South, with one huge exception. There is a purpose statement here. In other words, they put masters over them, not just so that they would build these cities, but a specific purpose was that this process would oppress the people of Israel. In other words, that the people of Israel would be beaten down and pacified so that they would not be able to rise up uh, against the Egyptians. And as we'll see in, a bit, uh, in just a bit, they did a superb job of pacifying the people of Israel and beating them down. But there's more. There's more. There's more that you might not have picked up on. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name was Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. And then verse 22 Pharaoh gives this command to his people every boy that is born. From the Hebrews, you must throw into denial. Now, again, you know, we, we sometimes wish that the Lord would give us a fuller picture. You know, give us all the details. We have no clue, really, who Shifra and Pua were, other than they were mid Hebrew midwives. We don't know why there is this connection between them and Pharaoh. But regardless... 
step back and look at what Pharaoh is attempting to do. If his goals are successful, then there will not be Hebrew boys born. Do the math. In a generation or two or three, there will not be children born, period. And the nation of Israel will shrink and basically die out. In other words, what we're seeing here is much darker, satanically inspired effort to annihilate God's people. We've seen that, of course, with, with Haman. It was more in the face, but it's also very much so here. Pharaoh is committed to seeing to it that the Israelites are beaten down and, and basically die out. So was he successful? To some extent, yes. Verse 14, here of this chapter, they, the Egyptians' overseers, made their lives bitter with hard labor. Now I want to park here for, for just a minute because I believe that people can be in bitter circumstances without becoming bitter. There really, really is a difference. You see in Scripture all kinds of examples. You see in history all kinds of examples where God's people were subjected to very difficult, very harsh environments that had the potential to make them bitter. And yet they chose, they trusted God, they were able to overcome in the midst of all of that. And for me, uh, a, a, an awesome example of that are the believers in China, the underground, who after several decades of, of harsh communistic rule, there are more believers in China than any place else in the world. In other words, the body of Messiah, the, the community of believers in China has been flourishing under harsh and awful circumstances. Not only are they flourishing, they're going beyond and they have visions for impacting the nations around them. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that everybody can be in difficult circumstances, and depending on our response, our perspective, our ability or inability to trust God, we can either overcome or be beaten down. Remember what Yeshua said to, in, in the letters to the seven congregations in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. Over and over and over and over again. Why? Because as followers of Messiah, it is possible and desirable for us to learn to overcome. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1, 3. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. In other words, regardless of the circumstance that you find yourself in, good, bad, or ugly, regardless of the circumstances, God is capable to give you His power, His wisdom, everything that you need to flourish 
and not only to flourish as an individual, but to make an impact. That was not the case with the majority of the people of Israel. If we were to fast forward to a couple of weeks, Rabbi David would be preaching in chapter 6, verse 9, Moses reported this, i.e. the message from God to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. The Hebrew phrase for discouragement literally means shortness of breath. You know, and, and as a former athlete way back in dim and distant past, I remember that you would come to situations where you were spent. You had run out of breath. You were incapable of proceeding. And the people of Israel at this point ran out of steam emotionally because they became discouraged. They ran out of steam spiritually because they refused to receive the message that God gave Moses to convey to them. And folks, the, the, the amazing, the, the incredible piece of how God works with humans and human and divine interaction is that even though he is the master of the universe, even though he created the world, even though he created you and I, even though he has the power to do all kinds of amazing things, there are times that God's hands are tied because of human unbelief. You see that, for example, in Yeshua's ministry, was he, he was incapable, he was unable to do certain things because of the people's unbelief. And so part of what we see here is that for the people of Israel, Pharaoh filled their screen and God was squeezed out. Or to put it in a different way, God could take them out of Egypt, but he couldn't take Egypt out of them. And that's the, the, the real challenge. That was the real challenge for them. It's a real challenge for us. The truth is, we all go through difficult circumstances. You live long enough, and you run into the wall in one form or another. I imagine that that probably takes shape after you're about one, one year old, maybe, or even sooner. And you can look at circumstances and be pressed and squeezed into the wrong kind of mold by those circumstances. Or you can make a decision that you're going to follow God, you're going to trust Him, and you're going to see what He's going to do regardless of the difficult circumstances you're in. And what is amazing for me, we don't often pay much attention to the midwives, but these two gals were amazing. Here you have the entire nation beaten down and discouraged and unbelieving, and these two gals have holy chutzpah. Don't you love it? Verse 17 in this chapter, the midwives feared God, did not do what the king of Egypt told them. They let the boys live. 
Now realize here that if Pharaoh says do something and you don't do it, uh, your head can be separated from the rest of your body real quick. They're more concerned about God's rule than they're concerned about Pharaoh's rule. And the key word there is feared God. And let me park on this word for just a minute. You have a couple of different ideas in Scripture about fear. One is the kind of fear that paralyzes us. And God says, don't be afraid like that. This word is different. Yara means not just, it means to reverence and to respect God. It's one of the key Hebrew words for worship. And you see this word repeated also in in verse 21 here. These gals fear God more than they feared Pharaoh. Or they trusted God more than they were concerned about Pharaoh. And they were under the same oppressive regime that everybody else was. In a, say, in a sense, they were more under the gun than everybody else was because Pharaoh was expecting them to comply and comply fully. Now, the truth, folks, is in, in the interaction between them and Pharaoh, they, they take the truth and they bend it a little bit until it screams. Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're more vigorous, etc., etc. Well, the Word of God doesn't say that God validated their uh, uh, verbal shenanigan. The Word of God states that God validated their trust in Him. And it uses all kinds of words again, superlatives, to point out that God honored their action. First of all, their action, how it impacted their own people. Verse 20, and, and God was kind to the midwives. How? By blessing the people. Because the people increased and became even more numerous. Same word here, atsam, atsmu, to become strong through numerical growth. These two gals represented their people, and God blessed them and blessed their people. But as is the case, generally speaking, God didn't just bless the rest of the nation. He also blessed them. He gave them families as a reward for their action. Because they refused to participate in the murder of these Israelite baby boys. Now, I don't see that we can extract from that the fact that God gives us permission to refuse human authority in all kinds of circumstances. We're told to be under authority unless human authority demands something from us that is clearly against the word of God. And Shifra and Pua 
are clearly counting the cost? Why? Because God fills their screen. God fills the screen. God is greater in their estimation than Pharaoh. And that's why they, they fear God, they honor him by doing the things that God wanted them to do. And if we were to pull the, the various threads here, what we see in chapter 1 is that at the very beginning, we have no clue what's going to happen. You have the 70 members of Jacob's family. They're there. However, we know how things are going to turn out because we have read the beginning of the book and we know that there's a plan and God is working the plan. So the challenge for all of us, when we are in circumstances where it seems like we're in the doldrums, like we're in a boat and the wind isn't blowing this way, that way, we need to step back and say, God is at work. That's what the Word of God tells us over and over and over again. God is at work. God has a plan. Not just for the universe, for Burundi, for the Middle East. He has a plan for us. And this is not narcissistic. This is the amazing part of who the Lord is. He has a plan. And we can either tune into that or we can tune into our plan, our strategy, because we feel like God isn't doing anything, so therefore I need to be the one to make things happen. I need to be the one to fix things. And when you get as old as I am and have as many gray hairs, you get the fact, you, you understand who is God and who isn't. And you realize it is much smarter to step back and say, Lord, what is it that you want to do here? And how do you want me to connect and tune in and to participate? And folks, that's the amazing things of being a follower of Messiah, Yeshua. Because you realize that you are partnering with the Almighty God in doing His work. And He invites you to participate and to enter into His joy. And you say, wow, Lord, that's amazing. Who am I? Who am I? And, and you're amazed by that, and, and you recognize the fact that the Word of God tells you to be available, to be uh, a tool that God can use in any circumstances, in all situations, good, bad, and ugly. And when things seem to be difficult, you don't shrink back and say, Ugh. But you say, okay, Lord, how are you going to use this difficult circumstance in my life, in me, and through me to impact people. Another story. Again, embarrassing uh, Aaron. The day when we had the party was very, very, very busy. We had services, we had outreach team meeting, and then we had the bash. And um, I came to, to the celebration not ready to, to party. In other words, running in fumes. And I sit down and, and uh, Aaron introduces me as his rabbi to the fellow who was sitting next to me. And 
I look at him, and he looks like someone who has been brought on the time machine from the 1960s. <clears throat> you know, gray hair, ponytail, etc., etc. And uh, so we started to talk, and I tell him, "Yes, I'm a rabbi." <clears throat> And uh, that being messianic means that we believe the Messiah will come and he will fix this mess. And his response was, well, I don't believe in a transcendent God. In other words, I believe in a God who's kind of little and, you know, manageable and so on. And uh, I thought, okay. <laughs> L let me move over here. Then he tells me that he is a Taoist. You know, that his reality is yin-yang. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, what do I know of Taoism? <laughs> I wanted to... And uh, if you're, those of you who are here for the outreach team meeting, you'll remember that Ruth Rosen encouraged us to ask questions. Not to come with a shtick and say, by golly, I know everything you need to know. And Yeshua's for you and so on and so forth. And, and remember, folks, that was Yeshua's approach when he, when he was interacting with the Samaritan woman. What did he do? Did he say to her, well, let me tell you all about the good book. No. He asked her questions, and so I asked him questions. As it turned out, um, we were able to connect as fellow Jews who have family who perished in the Holocaust. And come to find out this Jewish Taoist is very passionate about the need for Jewish people to survive. Well, so am I. So am I. Because I believe that God has a plan for Israel. He's going to bring about restoration. And so for me, it was a, le a simple lesson of, okay, uh, regardless of circumstances, you want to step back and say, God, you, you can do something here. You know, you can make a, lemon out of, a lemonade out of this lemon. And then learning to focus on the Father's business. Life is not about me or you. Life is about what the Father, our Heavenly Father, has in mind for each of us. And then we need to focus on the fact that He's working, that He has a plan, and we simply need to tie in and connect with that plan. Let's pray. Lord, we're absolutely amazed. Amazed, Lord God, that you would choose to bring us into a living relationship with you. That you would choose, Lord God, to work with us as a potter works with a clay, obnoxious clay sometimes. And that you invite us to participate in the great work of your kingdom. And Lord, we, we are honored, we are amazed, we're sobered by that. And we, we pray for each one of us. Lord, give us large panoramas. Give us, Lord God, large perspective to look beyond 
the day-to-day -day and, and, and the facts on the ground which we have to deal with. But Lord, give us large perspective to see what it is that you're doing. Give us, Lord God, holy chutzpah. And eagerness and a basic childlike faith in you, Lord, to trust that you want for us to engage, that you want to use us as your vessels to bring about growth and expansion of your kingdom. Lord God, speak to us today. Change our hearts, we pray in the name of Yeshua. Amen.